0: Welcome to the sixth episode of The Right Side of Maybe, the podcast where we talk to forecasters about their forecasts, their thinking behind the forecasts, and how we can all learn from their process moving forward. Today we're joined by Juan Cambero. Juan is a recent graduate from Macaulay at Hunter College where he majored in biology with honors. He's done bench work in an RNA lab and also has experience in epidemiology and biostatistics. He's a super forecaster and placed first in the Good Judgment Project's 2.0 focused tournament on COVID-19 and he is also first or second in the three challenges on Good Judgment Open that he's working on. Uh, he's most active on Metaculus and recently started working as a biosciences analyst uh, where he's also done part-time work as a moderator for the pandemic domain for the past year. We're going to learn a lot more about Juan and his background and some of the forecasts that he's worked on but to start, we're just going to get some background information about Juan. Um, but before we even get to that, i just want to welcome Juan to the podcast. So thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so to get started, we were wondering how and when you first were introduced to quantified forecasting, uh, you know, if you were sold on it immediately or if it took some time to sort of get acclimated to the practice um, and what interested you about forecasting in general?
1: Yeah, so I first heard about it a few years back, um, but I didn't really get interested or think much about participating in quantified forecasting until the fall of 2019 um, when I listened to Rob Weblin interviewing Phil Tetlock on the 80,000 Hours podcast. And yeah, they had mentioned um, Good Judgment Open. So I was curious and joined and started forecasting on a couple questions. um, And then in early 2021, I, I learned about Metaculus from Rob Weblin sharing Metaculus questions about COVID on Twitter um, and got really excited about Metaculus. Uh, so that's how I got introduced to it.
2: And when you first sort of got introduced to quantified forecasting and you actually started doing it, did you initially just do it as sort of like a hobby, like I'll spend like 10 minutes forecasting here or there, and then slowly over time as you started forecasting, you got it? you got much more serious about it and started working at your skills or like once you started forecasting, was this something that you wanted to get good at and sort of what were those first steps that you took while forecasting to get your accuracy and calibration, um, better and, and, and more, you know, well aligned.
1: I I think the path you just outlined is exactly the case for me and that I, um, Started out pretty slow. I I just um, started forecasting just because it seemed interesting and fun, not so much because I thought it was like a very important thing to get better at, just something that seemed cool to do. Um, But yeah, I didn't spend all that much time on the questions I forecasted on. Um, I just picked out a few questions that seemed interesting. I'd um, spend a couple hours on them a week, um, usually no more than like five or six hours a week. But then it was COVID that really got me into, you know, like even at one point obsessing about forecasting, um, especially in the spring and summer of 2020. So I spent a lot of time on forecasting, like instead of five hours um, a week, maybe four hours a day if you count like all the reading. and, but I, I don't think I could have gotten to a place where I could do accurate forecasting on COVID if I hadn't had at least that introduction to forecasting and playing around with it um, in uh, the fall of
0: 2019. So you just talked about some of the reading that you were doing. Um, what sort of information was part of your sort of research when you were going through some of the early questions? You know, you mentioned this COVID forecast. Um, was there a process that you had to find like relevant signals for your forecasts? Um common questions that you had that you would look for answers to. Um, and did you spend a lot of time following the news in general?
1: So for COVID forecasting um, in particular, something that I found to be very useful, um, probably more useful than like reading um, any other news source or even all of the news sources combined um, is to assemble like a a list um, of about, in my case, about eighty people on Twitter who provide really good analyses and insight into important subtopics um, on COVID. Um, this, like, both gets helps me get a, a handle on important information much sooner than most news sources get to it, and um, to get it closer from the source. So I found that to be super
2: valuable. And how did you sort of like find those users on Twitter? You know, that's, that's something that, you know, we've done for some of our forecasts. Uh, For instance, on like the Donbass region, we created a Twitter list of people that seem to, you know, do open source intelligence for the region. And um, many times for us, it's like, we'll stumble upon like one good retweet, and then we'll find an account, and then, you know, find other accounts that those people have found. Um, Do you sort of similarly just stumble upon these accounts or have you sort of honed a sort of practice in terms of trying to find these these few sort of signal identifiers and good analysts on twitter when there's you know throughout the sea of noise that exists
1: yeah so that's one way of doing it um that i have employed like looking at the um, likes and retweets of analysts that i already trust um another way is just like you curate your feed to just almost entirely be about COVID, you'll just see, um, you'll just get content (laughs) that um, aligns with your interest. And um, then I had to dig into like past tweets that these individuals I've come across have made, um, kind of get a sense as to how um, accurate they've been in the past, what their track record might be, even if it's not a quantified track record. just like for instance where they write about masks sooner than most other experts Mm -hmm. um that that's usually the way i'd go about doing it
2: and just i'm like as you know you were taking in this very nuanced and analytical information on covid did you find that that had a different way in which you know you viewed the situation did you felt that you had a much more Nuanced view of the pandemic. Did you feel like you were much more like well informed and like knew where the pandemic was generally heading before others, and that gave you a different sense of mind? And basically, like, did you notice like a a beneficial side effects from you know this information diet that was critical to your forecasts?
1: Yeah, like in in addition to these people usually being the best source of information, they were usually like well ahead of the curve. Um, and like sharing the, um, sharing the Im- most important and relevant information and sometimes even like parsing through the, the implications of that. Um, so like that, and it doesn't even have to be people who, um, or oftentimes isn't people who have any um, background knowledge on the topic. So um, for instance, uh, the first person who comes to mind, which I had mentioned earlier, um, as the person who introduced me to Metaculus, is Rob Weblin sharing COVID forecasts um, in January and February of 2020. I mean, just the fact that he was sharing all of these COVID forecasts um, really uh, alarmed me in the sense that it was a signal to me that this was an important issue. And then I I myself like arrived at the conclusion like in mid-February that we were gonna get hit hard by COVID in the US. Um, It was all but inevitable
0: just a quick question i want to go back a bit so we you talked about your experience in biology and also biostats for these covid forecasts and just for forecasting in general do you feel like your background helped to prepare you or give you sort of like a leg up over some other people that might be entering the space um like did your background in biostats that all provide you with some you know information that you know you found relevant to your forecasting
1: less than you would think um, especially since i didn't work on um, like viruses in particular, right? Um, but I think the one area of COVID forecasting that it might've helped with in particular is um, around the variants and like the the mutation rate of the virus and the fact that um, very few people, I mean, even I didn't really foresee the extent to which um, SARS-CoV-2 would uh, evolve to both evade immunity, but especially to become more transmissible and even um, deadlier. Um, But in terms of understanding the mechanics of how that's possible, like the biology um, undergirding it and the, the space of evolution that's left, I think that's like the one area I might have a better handle on as a result of my background.
2: I'm just also before we you know talk more specific about your approach to forecasting, since you forecasted, have you sort of noticed like just other benefits that, you know, doing this, this process um, has sort of helped you, like, has it increased your ability to pick up and learn new information um, faster? Has it moderated your polit- uh, political views a little bit and helped you have more nuance? Because there's research coming out of Penn with Barbara Mellers that has found that the process of forecasting helps moderate our views. And as I'm sure you're aware, every single time you forecast a question, most of the time, it's, it's, it's a lesson in learning a lot very quickly and being able to process that information, place it into the future. So have you you know, noticed other benefits towards your analytical and, uh, and reasoning skills um, as you forecasted more?
1: So in terms of um, like actually adjusting my views or my beliefs as a result, I actually don't think forecasting is really, um, influenced that very much. I think what it has influenced is um, how I search for new information and how I pick out um, what I think is most relevant, because that's exactly what you have to do when you're forecasting, especially on a question you don't know much about. So you're doing like some background reading and trying to figure out um, what the important factors at play are. Um, so I think that's a skill that I picked up along the way as a result of forecasting that I can apply to situations um, in which I'm not forecasting.
0: Wonderful. Um, And then also just really quickly, I'm curious. did you happen to you mentioned that you know one of the first steps that you did for this forecast was to go on Twitter and find other people who had smart analysis. Did you end up teaming with anybody on these forecasts, or have you explored working with other forecasters in the community, especially now that you're a super forecaster? How does that come up to you at all?
1: I, I do now to an extent, um, but I didn't at the time just because I think I was relatively new to forecasting. Um, I didn't really. I mean, retro retrospectively now I can see like the value of teaming up with others, but at the time I didn't really see the need to do it. Um, so I didn't. But I I shut up, and I I am at the moment and. I expect to consent you to.
2: Got it. So now I think it'd be great if we move specifically in terms of your approach to forecasting. And you provided us with three great forecasts that we want to walk through. But before we get to those specific forecasts, we want to just talk about your larger approach to forecasting. So you placed first uh, in the Focus 2.0 COVID forecasting challenge and have scored really well on good judgment, open COVID 19 forecasting what do you attribute primarily to your success in covid forecasting specifically has it been your ability to find good information from twitter has it been your ability to you know uh determine signal versus noise have you like yeah what 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 do, would you say has been your key ingredient in terms of being so good at covid forecasting
1: i Certainly don't think there's like a key ingredient. It's more of a process, right? Like the way um, one approaches forecasting and actually does it. Um, So for questions for which I already know a lot about the topic. So for instance, when approaching a new COVID question um, where I already know a lot about the particular situation um, I can spend as little as like a few minutes on it um, for my first forecast on it, even if I don't like consult the background information or base rates or whatever it is, just because I'm already so involved in forecasting similar questions. But for, um, in terms of my general approach to um, approaching a question, um, so first, if there's background information provided, I read that as well as any links that were provided. Um, If after that, I can't come up with a a good base rate, and I feel like I still might not have a good enough grasp on the topic, which I usually don't at that point um to at least take a first pass at the question. then I use like some combination of scanning an introductory article, usually like the relevant Wikipedia page honestly, um, as well as like reading some recent news articles on the topic and the the comment section for that question. Uh, after that, at that point, I almost always have what I need to arrive at at least a somewhat correct base rate and other understanding um, to make a first forecast. Um, And then this might be particular to me, but then I don't like immediately input that forecast. I just kind of arrive at it in my head. Um, Then I consult the community median and I adjust my forecast before inputting it if it's like way off compared to the median. Um, This like adjustment, adjustment method Though really only works well for binary questions, less so for date range and numeric ones, where I can't really avoid seeing the community's distribution. Um, but yeah, so that's you my normally
2: hide the community median until you've reached your initial base rate assumption, correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah. Um, and
2: and like how yeah, long do I, you think that you, that takes for you to get to your initial? point, obviously, it'll differ forecast to forecast. Some questions are obviously much easier than others, especially if they're similar to a question you've done before. But you know, if it's like a a relatively new question where you're we're having to do background research too to get to that initial forecast, do you have a a sense on roughly how long that normally takes you?
1: Really depends on how much I know about the topic, but maybe on average. 45 minutes to an hour. Um, but that can vary a lot from like half an hour to two or three hours.
2: Um, and then it, it seemed like when you were sharing your forecasts, you rely on a lot of small and frequent updates. Is that, is that true across the board or, um, more so for, for, for other questions? Um, it wouldn't surprise us given your skill that, you update all your questions frequently and in small batches, you know, that's what Pavla Tanasov's research found that, you know, the best forecasters, that's what they do. Um, generally, is that something that you tend to do on most of your questions as sort of small updates over time?
1: It is. Yeah. Um, both as a way of getting me to seek out new information that might be relevant to that uh, forecast, especially like new news updates. Um, but also as a way, especially if it's a question I've started forecasting on recently, as a way to just take a fresh look um, at the, the question, which I think is probably useful in um, reducing my bias and uh, helping me catch things I've missed.
0: Awesome. So now Clay, unless you have other questions, I was thinking we could get into um, the first of the three forecasts that we want to discuss today. And I thought we could start with the question, all three of them are on Good Judgment Open, um, about uh, mortgages. And so I'll just read the question out loud so that you know the listeners know what we're referring to. Um, the question, which started on March 13th of 2020 um, and closed in June of 2020, uh, read, before the 27th of June, 2020, will the weekly average contract interest rate for 30-year fixed rate mortgages with conforming low balances in the U.S., Fall below three percent. Um, so, I mean, before we get into, into some of the questions, I was wondering, um, you know, if you could maybe explain what that question is asking for the readers, or what that is, um, you know, for people who may not be familiar with fixed rate mortgages.
1: Okay, see, this is a good question to discuss because it's an example of um, how I forecast on questions where I don't really have both like the relevant background knowledge and also um, I have difficulty in understanding what it means. Um, and at the time, I didn't really understand what it, what a 30 year fixed rate mortgage with conforming loan balances really really Um Essentially it's something like um, a mortgage on a single family home that meets the requirements of Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae um, with the requirement that the loan amount is under like, it's $500,000 in most areas of the country, except some urban areas. um, And that interest rate is fixed over time. Um, It's something like that. But anyway, did I like really have to know what it is? Um, Not really. And I think the fact that I didn't really know what it is and I didn't really have the relevant economics training to properly evaluate the question um, actually helped me in the end. Because just looking at the base rate, which is all I pretty much did, and looking at um, the changes week over week are how I arrived at my forecasts.
2: So on this question, yeah, yeah. the initial sort of community forecast, once it stabilized after the first week, was about 75% chance, yes, that the weekly interest rates would fall below 3%. For context, what was your initial forecast on this question?
1: Yeah, so my initial forecast for the question, um, just pulling it up, was
2: 15%. And then it reached a low of, I, I believe at some point you had 0% as well in that forecast, correct?
1: Yeah, toward the end I reached 0 but even somewhere in the middle forecasting on this, I reached a low of like
2: 2%. So clearly, I mean, you got right off the bat, you were on the right side of maybe, you know, many times in these questions, it's people getting their much quicker than the community and as we can and as if you're watching this video on YouTube you can see it took about 2 months for the community average to go below 50% and consistently stay there. So you got there about 60 days beforehand. What do you think you got initially correct in this forecast? And then conversely, what do you think the community on good judgment, you know, missed off the bat and took them 2 months to realize?
1: So I'll start off with the caveat that I think um, consulting the community median to make sure you're not way off it, especially for questions where you don't have a like very clear and confident explanation in your head as to why you're probably right and the community is wrong. Um, I think that's something that you have to look at very closely. Um, it, and it'd probably be worth like sharing your analysis in a comment to get feedback on it from other forecasters. Like if you got a bunch of upvotes up, up um, and no one is challenging you, then you probably have more reason to think you're right. Uh, but if someone, if you get people challenging your reasoning, then that's a way for you to course correct. Um, but those aren't really things I did in this case, which I is usually not my approach. Here I just um, very heavily relied on the base rate. Um, and. The base rate was just overwhelmingly clear to me and that the interest rate stayed within like a narrow range of 0.55% between about like 3.4% and 3.95%. We also started out much closer to 4% than to 3%. um, And even in this like, especially volatile time, The interest rate never increased or decreased more than 10 basis points week over week. So it would take at least a couple of weeks of sustained decline for it to fall below 3%. Um, And we were just never really close to that in
0: the time frame of this question. So there's, I see sort of an analogous situation here between um, the way that you did this forecast and the way that some analysts look at stock markets where they have technical analysis and fundamental, the technical being sort of just looking at the movement of the stock and thinking about the future of it based on prior movements and the other one being having a more macro perspective on the market and you know, deciding your, your financial thoughts that way. It seems like you were leaning more on the technical side of things where you had a base rate and you're looking at the weekly movements um, to, to determine your forecast. Did you think at all about sort of the macroeconomic picture of the United States and how that might affect this forecast? Or was, was it really more just that weekly movement that you're paying attention to?
1: I I did to an extent, yeah. And there were some really good comments in the comment section that were considering that inside view, um, which was basically something like this, this huge negative demand shock would drastically uh, lower interest rates, probably in this case to below 3%. Um, But then something else you have to consider if you start considering the inside view and that a lot of people seem to have missed um, was that that seems like that huge negative demand shock and its effects on interest rates seems to have been largely canceled out by the huge purchases of mortgage-backed securities by the Fed, right? So like if you were considering the inside view, you would have to take both of those into account to reach um, the conclusion, um, which ended up being true that the interest rate would stay roughly stable and within roughly the historical uh, range. but if you had just not considered the inside view and just considered the base rate, you also could have gotten there in that case, um, which just speaks to how um, valuable looking at the base rate is.
0: And would you say that just in general, this is sort of like a broad forecasting question. Do you think, um, you know, at least for you, it's harder to um, do these updates or like find the base rates? Um, Like, for instance, like for this mortgage question, um, you know, I'm sure U.S. mortgage data goes back a long ways, and there's a lot of different reference classes you could use to think about this question. Did you find, um, you know, updating it harder, or did you find finding that initial base rate more difficult?
1: In terms of um, time commitment, finding the base rate and the right base rate is definitely the more time-intensive task. um, Then... The weekly updates are usually pretty easy in that you just look at how the interest rate has changed in this case week on week. Um, and it's just a good way of making sure your forecasts don't get stale, right? Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: It's really not that time intensive or that difficult to update them if there is no, if there are no huge changes going on in the situation. Um, and in we- this case for me, um, there weren't and that I wasn't really looking at the inside view all that much. But for others who were like almost exclusively considering the inside
2: view, there was a lot going on. When it came to those like updates and looking at how the mortgage rates were changing week over week, were you looking at absolute change? So how close it was getting to three or the rate at which it was changing down? I'm guessing you looked at sort of both, but did you have a a sense in terms of what you were weighing more at the time mentally?
1: I I was definitely looking at both. I think a third factor was like trying to determine when it would hit a low. Mm. And that was probably the main thing I was looking out for. And in fact, I had misjudged when it, when I thought it um, had reached a low, but it in fact had not, it had just gone back up for a week or two and then got back down to a new low. Um, But it never really approached a low of 3% um, or below 3%. But yeah, I was basically looking for the the, the record low that it would reach.
2: And now, sort of, I want to focus on now the other. So you've shared with us three questions, and so this is another one that you got on to the right side of maybe right off the bat in uh, before the rest of the community. So. This question was asked on April 13th, which was saying how many, April 13th, 2020, how many states will have reported a thousand or more COVID deaths out of the 1st of May 2020? And the correct answer ended up being more than 13 states. But if you guys are watching the YouTube video, initially more than 13 had around a 0 to 5% likelihood and only became the dominant forecast a day before the question closed. It was a, a massive sort of uptick, and yet you, your initial forecast was that the more than thirteen would have about a eighty-five a, percent a likelihood. Could you explain to us your approach to this question, how you uh, achieved your initial forecast, um, and you know what you think you got right on this one?
0: And I'd say, especially given the fact that, as Clay said, this started on April thirteenth, that was like really close to the start of the pandemic. How did you sort of curate your information? I'm sure there's a lot of information out there at that time.
1: Yeah, so the broad contours of like my thinking at the time, really since mid-February, was that the the response would be inept in the U.S. and we wouldn't really put the proper interventions um, in time to prevent it from uh, COVID from killing a lot of people in the U.S. So like my thinking in this question, for instance, started out with, um, based on the current trajectories of cases, which are being undercounted by some significant factor, um, we'll almost certainly reach more than 13 states, um, reaching over a thousand deaths based on um, both current death, but especially case trajectories. Um, So that's how I started out.
2: And so do you think that it was making that initial assumption of, you know, how this is going to unfold that the community sort of missed that they were taking it more so as the current data with face value and not anticipating the undercounting and the, that there wasn't going to be a marshalling of a large federal and coordinated response right away that you sort of spot out um, well before everyone else. Um, Or is that just, you know, one of many factors that you felt you got right?
1: I think that's probably the main factor, um, but also there was just at the time a huge difference between the uh, COVID situation in different states, right? So um, for instance, at the time, New York and some surrounding states were especially hard hit, but didn't necessarily seem like there would be enough states outside of the Northeast um, that would be hit hard enough in time to reach over a thousand deaths um, in this timeframe. Uh, So it was really a matter of um, assessing the extent to which COVID would spread throughout the different regions of the U.S.
2: Now, uh, and also just re-looking at this graph, I'm going to guess the situation, given your forecast in the community, is that at some point it became, is it going to be 12 states or is it going to be 13 states? And that was sort of the big disagreement because you were saying over or 13 or more states for a while and then closer to resolution you sort of switched that it would be between 11 and 13 which to me indicates that there was like a a state on the border and then um, just before resolution it realized that that wasn't going to tip over Um, and so do you think that was correct because to me it looks like at first looking at this community graph that they kind of just got it wrong forever but another interpretation is that if there was a state on the border that um the initial interpretation of the community was wrong but then throughout the majority of the question they just were sort of straddling this the state on the border do you think that's a fair assessment or do you have another interpretation of what what was going on here i
1: think that's right yeah and that um if I recall correctly, this um, question ended up resolving as more than 13 because it Mm -hmm. reached 14. Um, And it reached 14 because Ohio up until the end was like a toss up. Um, So essentially my initial assessment was that, yeah, well, like based on the current trajectories of the different states, um, which I had like all on a a big spreadsheet, um, we'll probably end up reaching 13, um, maybe, 14, 15, 16, um, or sorry, 14, 15, 16. Um, and the, that assessment really did change as the trajectory of deaths in Ohio in particular that end up um, seem like, seeming like it was on track to hit over a thousand. But it ended up um, hitting that threshold because of um, updates, um, to, to its backlog. So they were filling in deaths that had occurred in previous days. Um, mm. And that's how they ended up reaching over a thousand. But there was a point um, toward the end where I uh, readjusted back toward the community median, both because it didn't seem like Ohio was on track to um, exceed a thousand deaths. And also because um, I really um, heavily started analyzing, uh, depending my forecast on these analyses and forecasts by this team at Los Alamos, um, which put out uh, a COVID model for all the states of the US. Um, and at this time I was looking through the histories of these models and Los Alamos had the most accurate um, forecast, uh, the most accurate model for forecasting uh, seasonal flu um, in the 2018 to 2019 flu season. Um, so I adjusted heavily toward, um, what their forecasts were saying, which is that we'll probably fall somewhere in the 11 to 13 range. So those two combined, um, caused me to adjust back toward the community median. Um, and then at the very end of the timeframe of this question, um, Ohio did fill in those backlogs and it seemed like they were going to exceed a thousand deaths and they did.
2: You mentioned COVID modeling right there. Um, I'm curious, you know, given your experience forecasting COVID um, and looking at these models, what what value do you think that these models give? You know, there's been a lot of reports in the media about what all these models show. Very rarely are there updates saying, you know, how these models have actually fared. Um, and there's been research, you know, coming out of people that we've had on the show, you know, Regina Joseph, Pavel Tanasov, showing that machine learning models and stuff, generally underperform human forecasters. And you're an extremely successful human uh, COVID forecaster. What sort of role when understanding the pandemic do you think machine models have? And what role do you think human forecasters like yourself and community forecasting platforms like Good Judgment Open and Metaculus have in terms of understanding the trajectory Of the pandemic. You know, you have Virginia Health Department. They've opened up a series of questions on Metaculus, trying to understand um, through human forecasting how the pandemic is going to shift. So clearly, there's a sense within the public health community that human forecasters have a seat at the table. Um, How do you sort of view these two components when it comes to understanding the pandemic? And given the history of the pandemic and pandemic forecasting, do you have a sense for? which one is better um, overall?
1: So at the beginning of a pandemic, I think that's where human judgmental forecasting is most useful and that there are too many uncertainties to plug in for computational modeling to be all that helpful. Although it can still be broadly helpful and um, like laying out the space of what's possible. And then human judgmental forecasting can try to quantify all of these uncertainties and arrive at like try to be a little more granular than the um, computational forecasts. Um, then the computational forecasts um, become more valuable once they're once they get a handle on the extent to which cases are being undercounted. Um, what the delay between a case uh, being detected and the death occurring is, um, what that time lag is. um, And then some models, so I'm thinking of Yu Yang, whose model in particular here, ended up doing extremely well. Um, And that's where computational forecasting can really come into play, I think, once the pandemic, once a pandemic really gets going. Um, And in that case, human judgmental forecasting becomes more valuable on the margin for questions that computational modeling would again have a hard time with. So for instance, um, trying to get a grapple on the, the future evolutionary space um, mm-hmm. in terms of mutation rates and variants, which at some point in the future, computational modeling will probably be able to do but at the moment cannot do all that well.
2: But even like where computation modeling does well, it, given that like, d- does it still not make sense for human forecasters to sit on top of those outputs still as a process you know like models are still right it, it's humans in some ways automating their forecasting process so it, it would seem like if you have good well calibrated unbiased and unnoisy forecasters that having them sit on top of model outputs almost as just you know making sure that the outputs make sense in terms of a larger understanding that you know, there still is a a place for, for humans, even once we're in a world where the analytical and automated models can still put out good outputs. Um, would, would you agree, or do you see it differently?
1: I do agree. Um, conditional on the resources being made available for like having the manpower to do that. Right. Um, but that's for instance, what they do in, um, weather modeling. Right. Um, yeah, I think ultimately that's, going to be the best approach for infectious disease forecasting, I think. Um, but it would necessitate the manpower to look over all those forecasts um, and adjust them um, appropriately. But for just like a couple of like forecasters doing it as a hobby, um, it's too much to look at forecast for like all 50 states, for instance, that are updated daily.
0: I wanna look at this forecast quickly from a personal perspective. Earlier, Clay mentioned that forecasting, you know, on a kind of Barb Miller's research has the ability to moderate views, political or otherwise. Do you feel like working on this forecast so early in COVID helped you to sort of compartmentalize your own anxiety about the disease um, as you sort of did the forecast, just like the act of sort of objectively looking at the signals and understanding the severity of it versus you know, potentially just listening to what the news was saying.
1: So I'm actually not sure, like if anything, forecasting on COVID made me more alarmed early on about COVID and more anxious about um, the prospect of COVID hitting humanity hard in the very near future. Um, But what it did help with um, was guiding like my personal decision making. So I like, in February, I stopped attending attending like large lecture classes. I tried avoiding mass transit as much as possible. Um, the, the one mistake I made was not to embrace the use of masks at that point. Um, I did it until sometime in early March. But and yeah, in terms of guiding my own personal decision making, it helped.
2: And I'm and, guessing also like once you know, when during like the initial, oh, the lockdowns will just be like a very short thing. It may only be two weeks. I'm guessing that you had a different sort of sense of how that was going to unfold and were a little bit less naive um, as the sort of lockdown measures came into came into place as well, which I'm sure had, you know, in some ways, you know, it's bad, you know, you're saying it being, being more anxious about the pandemic, but in some ways it makes you less long-term anxious because you have a a clear understanding of where things are are probably going to be headed as well um so yeah i
1: mean i i think for instance to that point um when most of europe and north america was under stay-at-home orders and mid to late march it was already clear at that point that covid would become endemic right that was never going to go away Mm -hmm. that we're not going to stop it with contact tracing um I think the key uncertainty at that point was simply like, would we have vaccines in time to inoculate as many people as possible to protect them against it before it reached them?
2: So if we've talked now about two great forecasts where you got to the right side of maybe before everyone else. Uh, and now we want to shift to your third and final forecast, which we're really glad that you shared because this is a forecast where. You're on, as we now like to say, the wrong side of maybe, and I thought it'd be great if you could sort of walk us through, you know, what you got wrong. So for context for our listeners, this was a forecast that was asked in June 2020, which closed uh, May 1st of this year, 2021, which was asking before May 1st, 2021, will it be officially announced that the Tokyo 2020 Olympics and or Paralympics will be canceled? The correct answer was no, and that's what the community got. But you viewed this question differently. Could you walk us through how you initially approached this question and, you know, the fact that you ended up getting this question wrong and why you felt that, given your strengths in COVID forecasting, you know, why this question was an outlier?
1: So there were two key failings on my part here, um, both on the uh, extent to which COVID would spread in Japan um, part and also on the political response um, and political reality and how that would guide decision-making by Japan's government, the IOC. Um, So on the COVID front, I really did not understand at the time and still really don't understand how Japan has been able to um, avoid the worst of COVID and that they never implemented um, stay at home orders. Uh, They have a really elderly population. Um, They had a lot of contact with um, China at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And yet, and even with um, new variants arising, um, they still haven't been hit all that hard uh, compared to most of the rest of the developed world, um, so that that was a key failing um, of mine that I didn't that I really thought that um, especially once B one one seven emerged and its transmissibility was characterized, um, I, now the variant is called Alpha. Um, I thought for sure it would hit Japan hard since they did not have the um, mechanisms in place to be able to. Um, implement stay-at-home orders, and then in turn, I thought that being hit really, really hard by COVID at that point would mean that, um, in terms of um, the uh, Olympics being politically feasible, that that would um, that w- they wouldn't be at all politically feasible at that point. Um, and then on on that end, yeah, in terms of political feasibility, um, opinion polling, like poll after poll, would show that the Olympics, going ahead with the Olympics was very unpopular among the Japanese public. Um, At one point reaching like 80% of the Japanese public not wanting the games to go ahead. Um, And I just thought that that would um, obligate the Japanese government, not literally but in terms of wanting to um, maintain their popularity, especially um, given that there was a new prime minister in place I expected would want to solidify his standing by um, being popular, um, but that didn't end up being the case in that I think the the political motivation in mind was that it would be bad for Japan's image to the world to cancel the games. Um, Hmm. That's what ended up seeming like the decisive factor, more so than like opinion polling.
2: So it sounds like, you know, you were considering the domestic political constraints and the public health constraints, but you're saying that you missed out the geopolitical, you know, reputation constraint. I'm also interested, what you didn't mention in, you know, how you approached this question was examining the economic constraints of cancelling the Olympics. And I was wondering if that's something that you considered for listeners who are unaware. um, And I think, you know, something that I wasn't aware until I read the media reports, but that it's up to the Olympic Committee to cancel the Olympics. If the host country, if Japan in this case, were to cancel the Olympics unilaterally, that they would be um, on the hook for, I think, tens of billions of dollars that they would owe the IOC. And so not only, you know, was that the reputational aspect, but there's also an an economic um, consideration here at play. Did you was that something that you considered in your forecast or do you think that's one signal and I would argue an important signal that you that you missed in your forecast?
1: So I had considered it to a degree, um, but I underestimated how how important it ended up being um both in that I didn't so I I knew for instance that um it was the IOC that ultimately had to make the decision to cancel the games or to postpone them for a second time and um I kind of figured there would be some financial ramifications for um the Japanese government I didn't really know what those were um until later on um and as you said it's actually the billions of dollars. So that's an additional factor that I about to consider early on, yeah.
0: Were you doing any COVID forecasts at the same time that you were doing this Olympics forecast? And did any of the learnings from those in terms of just how COVID was progressing affect your Olympics forecast at all?
1: Yeah, so the single worst question I did on in the, um, uh Good Judgment Project 2.0 focused tournament was also on Japan. Um, it was like on case numbers by um, the first of July, uh, 2020, and I thought it would definitely reach the um, highest then, but it didn't. Um, and again, this just ties back into my lack of understanding and continued lack of understanding as to how Japan has managed to avoid the worst of COVID.
2: Uh, one you know question i had about these forecasts and particularly this japan forecast is it looks like you did better on the forecasts that were harder so the mortgage forecast the crowd briar score which is how accurate they were was 0.55 which i believe good judgment they have a different briar score system but i think a 0.5 is the equivalent of of saying a 50 50 likelihood so they didn't really know what they were saying. Um when it came to the the COVID deaths forecast, community brier score of 0.442. Again, not much insight coming from the crowd. But when it came to the Olympic forecast, it was 0.2, which means there was some, you know, foresight coming from the community. Do you have a sense that you do better on harder questions? Do you think maybe you viewed your, you know, you're very good at COVID forecasting, which therefore means you generally are different than the community or you're more likely to be different than the community because you are, are better than them. And so you can't be having their forecasts all the time. Do you think that played into anything going on here where you were sort of less receptive to the difference between the community because you're so good at COVID forecasting? I think this
1: ties back into the discussion about the extent to which you should, um, assess a question based on the base rates and um, extent to which you should adjust that based on the inside view, right? So for the mortgage interest rate question, I did pretty well by pretty much only looking at the base rate. And if if I think if I had looked at the inside view, I would have ended up doing worse because I would have adopted the view by um, many others that this huge um, negative demand shock would cause it to fall below 3%. So in that case, a question in which I don't have a lot of background knowledge, um, in which I didn't look that much into the economics at play, um, considering the base rate works really well. For the second question on how many COVID deaths um, across different US states, um, that's on the, that on the other hand is like a question um, in which I was following the content matter really closely, playing around with spreadsheets, um, where there isn't really a, a good base rate to look at, um, and in which I felt comfortable looking at the inside rate, like almost exclusively, and being pretty confident in it. Um, for this question on the Olympics, I, um, I think I would have done well to, um, not. Try to arrive at too much of my own inside view that went against the grain of the inside views of others um, who were forecasting on the same question when I didn't have um, a comprehensive enough understanding of the political considerations at play.
0: And then also looking at the graph from this forecast, it looks like um, the only time that the yeses outweighed the noes was like last summer from it looks like July through September almost. Um, do you think that that was, you know, in large part due to the fact that people were being swayed by, um, you know, their their own personal beliefs that maybe they thought COVID would be done by the summer and then when it wasn't gone by the summer, you know, they felt oh it might just be going on, you know, forever and so they had sort of a pessimistic view on the question. Um, or why do you think that that last summer was like you know the only real period of um you know where those two positions switched
1: so last summer was when the community thought that um there was a better chance that the olympics would actually be canceled right so i think they expected covid to continue being um a big consideration and the most relevant consideration, um, to, um, the extent to which it would actually cause, um, Japan and the IOC to cancel the Olympics. Um, hmm. so that was throughout summer of 2020. And then sometime in the early fall of 2020, the community switched over to thinking that was more likely that the Olympics would actually go ahead. Um, and I, I didn't update, um, nearly as fast in that direction as the community did.
2: Great. Um, So now I think we want to move along to our last sort of concluding questions. I think that was a great examination of those three forecasts, the two that you got to the right side of maybe and the one that you got to the wrong side of maybe. Um, And it's just really interesting to listen to your, your thought process on those. So to start off, I was wondering you know, what is the most challenging part of the forecasting process for you? And conversely, like, what is the most enjoyable? But con- conceivably, those two could be the same, given that the forecasting process can be quite difficult. And so some people obviously enjoy going through those challenges. Um, so, yeah, for you, what, what do you find the hardest and the most rewarding parts of forecasting?
1: I think they're both the same thing, which is um, learning about an area in which, I don't already have um, at least some background knowledge. Um, I like learning about new topics that I have no background in, um, but it's quite a challenge in that like, oftentimes if I'm reading like some article on it, I, I don't know what a lot of the terms mean. So I have to look up those terms and then um, I just fall into a rabbit hole, of like reading more and more about the topic, but that's something I genuinely enjoy. Um, it's just difficult in that, It's both time intensive um, and oftentimes like the content matter might be quite difficult itself.
0: Um, Yeah. And so maybe, you know, you just said that, you know, this part is pretty difficult, so you might not. But I was curious if you use any of these forecasting skills in your personal life, um, if it has any impact on, you know, decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis, um, even if it's just sort of, you know, you said that sometimes you can make forecasts in just a few minutes if you have... A lot of knowledge about the subject. You know, do you make any of those quick ones?
1: So, the clearest example, which I think I had already mentioned, of um, using forecasts for my own personal decision making was with respect to COVID, especially in um, February and March 2020. Right. Um, Apart from that, I think uh, forecasting has influenced my Career decision making to an extent, um, and that I've shifted from um, one area to another within the biosciences based on um, like the broad contours of predictions as to what will end up being more important um, in shaping the future, right? Um, then, in terms of like my day to day life, I don't really employ forecasting all that much just because it's something I have a lot of control over. So Instead of like saying that I think there's a 20% chance I'll actually get this uh, project done by the end of the week, I'll, I'll just like find Great. the motivation to go ahead and do it, right? Um, so in terms of day-to-day this decision-making, it doesn't really um, come into play, but for those other two areas, it does.
2: And then sort of finally, this is a two-part question. One is... What sort of tools do you use when forecasting? Do you use uh guesstimate, for instance? Have you looked at things that are they're being developed at all? Um, Have you used MetaForecast that's been developed, which lets you search through forecast across multiple different platforms? So do do you use any sort of tools when you forecast? And then more broadly, like what are your recommendations for both new and experienced forecasters who want to get to the right side of maybe more often or earlier and with the right amount of confidence?
1: Yeah, so in terms of tools... um... So for COVID, for instance, I found myself playing around with spreadsheets a lot. Um, and I did use to get guesstimate sometimes. I did find a valuable for um, some of the questions on COVID. Um, I have used Forecast, or uh, before that, just like Googling um, questions I'm forecasting to see if it's on any other platforms. So I have consulted like similar iterations of the same question on other platforms. Um, yeah, and then in terms of um, like improving um, forecasting skills, I think like the the key by far is to practice, right? Um, and then learning from your mistakes and reviewing your mistakes. Like I remember very distinctly, um, one of the worst questions I've um, ever, that uh, I got completely wrong in forecasting was one of the first questions I, forecasted on when I first joined um, Good Judgment Open, and it was something about, um, I think, relating to uh, the makeup of Taiwan's um, parliament, and that I consulted like some of the background reading, and there was this article by The Economist, which is probably my number one news source, um, that said that the... KMT, which is one of the two main political parties, will probably end up gaining control of the legislator. Um, and I just deferred to them and forecasted that they would probably gain control of the legislator for a long time, even against the community median. And I ended up being very wrong on that. Um, so I think, like, one lesson is usually um, like the background reading um, gives you useful information that you should know to then make your forecasts, maybe not necessarily the source of the forecast themselves, right?
2: Awesome. Andrew, any more questions for Juan? No, I think
0: that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, the only other question would be, where can people find you, Juan? Um, you know, are there any exciting projects that you're working on that you want our listeners to know about? Yeah, feel free to shamelessly plug away.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at Juan underscore Cambiero. I have recently um, come on full time for the summer as an analyst at Metaculus. Um, so if, you're, if you have any interesting ideas for like new questions to put on Metaculus, if you want me to take a look at any of the questions you wanna put on Metaculus, or have any cool project ideas, feel free to reach out to me. Um, and I'm working on some projects related to biosecurity in particular. Um, so stay, stay tuned on that front.
2: Very exciting. And yeah,
1: a, something I just wanted to like emphasize is that um, like forecasting isn't just something that's fun and interesting um, and maybe somewhat valuable for the intelligence community specifically, which is basically what I thought when I first started forecasting. Like, I just really wanna make the point that um, it's actually something that's really important, um, neglected and tractable for pretty much all fields, but especially for those in which actively shaping the future is a key objective. Um, I mean, like for anyone like me who subscribes to long-termism, accurate forecasting, or at least knowing where to find good forecasts is essential to guiding decision-making at all levels. And it's like the logical next step um, after forecasting is to use forecasting to guide decision-making um, to like shape the future in the best possible way. So that's something I'm really excited about continuing to do work on um, and that Metaculus has actually started addressing in a holistic way by partnering with nonprofits um, as part of its causes framework. And it's like a new exciting direction in forecasting generally that um, I'm really enthusiastic about.
2: So, so correct. And so spot on and very well said. And something that Andrew and I couldn't agree with more. Um, if you guys are listening to the show and you want to follow Juan, you'll find a link to his Twitter down in the description below. Definitely go follow him. Um, you you make some great content out there. If you just want to follow, um, get some good COVID information and forecasts. Couldn't recommend following him more. So make sure to check that out in the description below. I think that this was a phenomenal episode and I certainly learned a lot and I'm, and I know our listeners will too. So thank you so much for giving us all this time and for such a wonderful podcast appearance.
1: Thanks. This was a lot of fun.
2: All right. And this was the sixth episode of The Right Side of Maybe. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye.